We're going to be continuing our series that we've been going through the, the past couple of weeks. Uh, the series titled, Created to Glorify God and Enjoy Him Forever. Looking specifically at redemption. You know, the, the first week we looked at creation, God creating the world, His purposes there creating all things, creating us, His glory, and then for us to be able to enjoy Him in His glory by making much of Him, things like that. And then last week, looking at the fall of creation, when sin entered into the world, and we were looking at different aspects of the fall there, and so now this morning we come to redemption. And what I have titled this sermon is redemption, God's glory vindicated, and fellowship with Him restored. God's glory vindicated, and fellowship with Him restored. And I give it that title because as we look at redemption, those are the two main things that are going on there when redemption takes place. God's glory, which was trampled upon in the fall, you know, rejected in exchange for other things, is vindicated. It seemed to be righteous and holy. And then fellowship with Him is also restored. So we're going to be seeing those two things mainly, and we're also going to be seeing some other truths about redemption as well. But before we go any further, please pray with me, and let's ask for the Lord's help as we look into His Word. Our Father in heaven, we come before you thankful once again that we are able to gather together as your people, to sing together. Lord, thinking about the song that we just sang, my worth is not in what I own, not in flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds at the cross, the costly wounds of love. And that's what we're talking about this morning, Lord, as we look at redemption the Lord Jesus Christ giving Himself so that we can enter once again into a relationship with You. We do not deserve it. We have not earned it. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to gain this great pleasure and great gift. Christ has purchased it all on our behalf. Lord, be with me now as I seek to communicate these truths to your people, and I pray that you would be with them as they listen and receive them. Give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive it with great joy, with gladness. May these truths flood our minds and flood our hearts and give us great joy, great confidence in life. We thank you for Christ, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned a moment ago, last week we were looking at the fall of creation, God's glory being rejected there. And as we were looking at the fall, we saw that Adam and Eve, at the core of their sin in the the Garden of Eden, had desired to be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, that's what the serpent said to them as he came to them in the garden. If you eat of the fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And that was at the core of their sin, their 
desire to take of the fruit and to eat of it, to be like God, knowing good and evil. And it was a desire that then led them to eat of the fruit and also led them to reject the glory of God and to embrace their own. And we saw that is why everything is broken, and broken, including our own hearts, because we are just like our parents, our, our first parents there. We desire to be like God. And we have exchanged His glory for the glory of man, for the glory of creation, for the glory of other things. We have trampled it afoot as they did in the Garden of Eden. But even in the midst of the fall, as we were looking at all of these horrible things that happened and the consequences that came because of sin and the rejection of God's glory, God was still sovereign and His plan was still being accomplished. It was still going forward. There was no kink put in the line when this happened. God didn't throw His hands up or put His hands over His mouth and say, oh no, what do I do now? I didn't expect that to happen. No, God's plan continually went forward. His plan was still being accomplished. He was still sovereign over every part, every aspect of His creation. And one of the places that we saw this in, one of the places that this is evident, this truth is in Genesis 3.15, where even as God pronounced the curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent because of their sin and their rejection of God's glory, God gave hope. When in Genesis 3.15, He told the serpent that one day the woman would bear a son or bear seed, offspring, that would bruise or crush the serpent's head while at the same time having his heel bruised or crushed. So even as God pronounced these curses, even when all looked as if it was lost, God shines hope in the midst of darkness, showing that This is not plan B. This is not something you had to go back to the drawing board and come up with. It was always there. And so we left off in our time together last week with the question, so who is this serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15? Who is he? And how is he going to restore all of the things that have been broken? Those things that we were looking at last week, those different aspects and consequences that sin had brought into the world. How is He going to restore the relationship that's been broken with God, you know, separation with God, from God? How is He going to vindicate God's glory? Well, we're going to see that this morning. So let's look and see how the Bible answers those questions. So you can go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. It's going to be the first main text that we're looking at together. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. In Genesis chapter 4, you have... Already the curses have been pronounced upon the serpent, upon Adam, upon Eve. God has kicked them out of the garden. And at this point, they have now had children. They have Cain, the firstborn, and then they have Abel. 
And then in chapter 4, we are told about the very familiar story of Cain and Abel, how Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He murdered him. And the point of this is showing how fast sin spreads into humanity. It is a horrific disease that spreads very quickly. And then further down in chapter 4, the author of Genesis, he gives us a short genealogy of Cain and his descendants in verses 17 down to to 22. And then it ends up with Lamech, who he also commits murder. He takes two wives and then he boasts about the murder he commits, saying that how he's going to be you know, worse than Cain. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And then you go further down, and then the author, he rewinds the story for a moment, and he goes back to another son that's been born, Seth. And I want you to pay attention to what happens here. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the author rewinds the story. He focuses in on Seth being born and how when he is born, Adam and his family begin to call out to the Lord in this moment. So what is going on here? Well, in chapter 5, again, the author gives a genealogy of Adam and his descendants and he focuses on the line of Seth. And so he's making a comparison here against Cain and his descendants and the wickedness that's being spread there, but the righteousness that God is bringing into play through Seth being born and his descendants. There's a comparison being shown there. And so why I think or what I believe is happening when Seth is born and the people are crying out to the Lord, they're looking back to that promises, that promises in Genesis 3.15. That promise that God made there. Remember, Abel was killed. Cain was cursed by God and he was banished. The promise wasn't coming through either one of them. Now Seth is born. And they begin to call out to the Lord. And this genealogy in chapter 5 shows that God is working through Seth and his descendants. The promised one of Genesis 3.15 is going to come through this line. Well, still we have the question of, well, who is he? Because we don't find it here and we don't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. We get hints, but we don't find out until we go to the New Testament. So turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. This is also a genealogy. It's a genealogy that Luke brings up in his account of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as he's 
recounting what Jesus did, His life and His ministry. And at this point, He stops and He gives a genealogy of who Jesus is and who He's descended from. Now, the point of this genealogy, similar to Matthew's genealogy, is to show that Jesus Christ is the son of David the king. The point is to show that Jesus Christ is the true king. The true king who is going to reign over God's creation. But Luke does something differently in his genealogy from Matthew. Matthew just traces it all the way back to Abraham. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And the point that he's making there, you know, Luke's audience being a Gentile audience, he's showing that Jesus Christ is not only the true king of Jewish people, but he's the true king of all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. But there's also another truth to be seen here at the very end. Verse 38. In his genealogy, he says this, The son of Enos, which is Enosh in the Old Testament, in the genealogy in Genesis, the son of who? The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So what we see here as we look at this genealogy is the promises, the promise, I keep wanting to say the promises, <laughs> The promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled where God told Adam and Eve and the serpent that He was going to raise up this son who was going to crush the head of the serpent and He's going to restore all things. And as we come to the Gospel of Luke and He lays out this genealogy, we see that Jesus Christ is the man. He's the one. I just want you to think about the weight of what's happening here. You know, just try to let this sink in for a moment. That promise was made thousands of years ago. And it was hinted at throughout the Old Testament, but the people never really knew who it was going to be. And then you come to the New Testament. After all of that time, this man, Jesus, steps onto the scene. Everybody's asking, who's this man? You know, doing all these miracles and signs and preaching with authority. Who does he think he is? And Luke says... He's the promised one. He's the one who's going to restore all things. He's the king of creation. He's the son of God. He's the true and better Adam. He's the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus Himself shows that He is the one who is going to fulfill this promise. And, well, He shows it in many different passages, but I'm going to bring up John chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. Listen to what Jesus says to the people here. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You know, He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be crucified. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's talking about Satan there. The, the ruler, small r, the, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is about to crush Satan's head. He's about to strip him of his power. He is about to dispossess him of control over the world. Not that God is no longer sovereign, but the Bible calls Satan uh, the prince of the power of the air, the, the ruler of the world. You know, he's enslaved humanity and things like that. Well, Jesus is about to take all those things back. He tells them that he is about to fulfill the promise of God, the promises, the promise of Genesis 3.15. Well, how? How is Jesus going to accomplish this? Through the cross. He's going to accomplish the promise through the cross. Through being crucified. Through, through dying and then being raised from the dead. This is how He's going to accomplish this promise. Which is a very strange way to bring about the promise if you think about it. And even His disciples constantly thought it was strange. But He's going to accomplish it through the cross. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Colossians 2, 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Excuse me, so the first part of that verse is God. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God putting forth His Son, Christ, triumphing over them in Him through the cross. And the fact that this is so strange, God accomplishing this, this great promise through the cross, it goes back to what we were looking at last week. God working all things out in a way where He would put His glory on display in the cross of Jesus. God allowing all of these things to take place, you know, allowing Adam and Eve to do what they did, allowing the serpent to do what he did, so that He could bring about His plan of redemption through His Son, and bring glory to Himself through Christ. Again, listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, a passage we looked at last week. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God from eternity past had this plan in mind when He created all things and then allowed Satan, Adam, and Eve to rebel and fall into sin. Again, I say that the crucifixion of Jesus was not plan B, but it was the plan from all eternity. And oh, what a God we have, right? When you, when you think about these things... I think this is why Paul wrote what he did in, in Romans chapter 11. 
in those very well-known verses, verses 33 to 36, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches in wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Our God is great indeed. And His wisdom cannot be... It cannot be reached. It cannot be completely understood. The depths of it cannot be plummeted. His wisdom is infinite. I want us now to focus in on focus in on the cross. So we know that Christ has accomplished this promise in Genesis 3.15 through the cross, through being crucified on it and then being risen or raised from the grave three days later. But what are some specific accomplishments that were accomplished through the cross. Yes, we know that Genesis 3.15, that promise was accomplished, but there's other things going on there as well. Well, here are six of them. There are many more, but I'm just going to bring up six. The first one that I bring up is the, the most important, and that is that through the cross, Jesus Christ vindicated the glory of God. Through the cross, Jesus Christ proved that God's glory is indeed great. It is indeed holy. And that God did not just stand back and and let His glory be trampled on. Because you think back to Genesis 3 when His glory was trampled on. What did Adam and Eve and the serpent deserve? They deserved death right then and there. The human race, the creation, all just... Deserved to be wiped clean and God start over, but He didn't do that. He showed mercy. So how could God do that? How can He show mercy when His glory, which is the greatest thing in all of creation, and is to be adored and enjoyed and reverenced, how can He show mercy without it being shown to be holy? How can God not show justice? Well, He has through Christ. Through the punishment of Jesus on the cross. Romans 3, 23-26. Listen to what Paul says here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation. It's kind of an old word. You don't hear it very often. But it means that Jesus Christ was put forward to appease something. So who was He appeasing? God. Continuing reading. As a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's glory has been vindicated through Christ. He has taken what we so much deserved. We trampled upon His glory, not Christ. Jesus was the only one who upheld His glory fully, shown it to be worthy and reverenced it properly, enjoyed it and things like that. We are the ones that trampled it afoot. We are the ones that deserved what Christ received, but He took it on our behalf. Secondly, the wrath of God has been satisfied. This goes hand in hand with God's glory being vindicated. We deserve the wrath of God. That was one of the things that we looked at as the consequence of sin. Because we are sinners, because we have sinned against God, He deserves to pour out His wrath upon us. But Jesus Christ satisfied it. Again, the first part of Romans 3, 23 and 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Three, death has been defeated through the cross. Another one of the consequences of sin that we deserve, Jesus Christ took and He defeated. Death has been defeated. John chapter 11, verses 25 and the first part of verse 26. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the consequence of death that we deserve is defeated and removed from us through Christ and through Him alone. Through Christ there is life even after death. So even though we still die, you know, we'll, we'll still die if Christ doesn't come back, you will live. <laughs> you will receive life in Christ. Which just totally diminishes all fear of it, right? You don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to fear the consequences of death because Jesus Christ took them for you and He has removed them. Within Him is the power of resurrection, and with him, within Him is life. And He freely gives it to all who come to Him. Four, sin has been forgiven, and it has been cast away. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. 
How does he do that? Through Christ and the cross. Our trespasses, our sin that we have committed, he has removed them and he has, in a figurative, in a figure of speech, he has forgotten them. He has removed them from his mind. When he sees you, if you are in Christ, he does not see your sin, he does not see your disobedience, he does not see the fact that you have trampled upon his glory, but he sees the success and the accomplishment of his son on your behalf. Number five, Satan has been defeated. We looked at this a moment ago, but I'll give you another passage that proves this. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, Jesus Christ has defeated Satan. In part, now, you know, Satan is still active. Yes, his head has been crushed. His power has been removed in Christ. But yet he still harasses the people of God. But one day, when Christ comes back, when we look at restoration in a couple of weeks... Satan will be totally removed from the picture. So he's been defeated in part now, and he will be completely defeated when Christ returns in power. But the promise is still true either way. Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled in Jesus. Number six, we have been brought back into fellowship with God, and we are once again able to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Because you remember, what was the reason why we were stripped of this this privilege and this gift? Enjoying God. Being in His presence. We were separated because of our sin. Because of our trespass. Because of trampling His glory to the ground. But through Christ, that fellowship has been restored. And so along with the fellowship of God being restored, so is the ability to glorify God and the ability to enjoy Him forever. Those are also restored. 1 Peter 3.18, the first part of the verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God that He might bring us to Him, that He might restore that fellowship with Him that was once broken and fractured by sin. And then listen to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is a parable that Jesus is telling to the people. It's about the kingdom of heaven. He's saying what it is like. And this is how He describes it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he ha- all that he has, and he buys that field. He's describing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in that parable. Remember, 
And this man finds it. He buries it. He goes, he sells all that he has, and then in his what? His joy, he sells it so that he can have the treasure, which is Christ and in his king and it's Christ and his kingdom. He sells all that he has, and in his joy, he's doing all of this so that he can have it. How do you get that joy? It's through Christ, and it's through the cross. It's only going to be restored to you in that way. So how do we receive it, right? How do we become, how do we get in on this? How do we get in all of these, get in on all of these accomplishments that we looked at and the, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that was accomplished and fulfilled in Christ? How do we get ourselves in on all of these promises? How do we become a part of them? We receive this wonderful gift, these wonderful accomplishments through repentance and faith. We receive them through repentance and faith, which are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. So what is, what is faith and, and what is repentance? Faith is basically trust. Now I know that's simple, but at the same time there are many people who struggle with what faith is and what it looks like to have faith. I was one of them. I think I've told some of you guys this before. Whenever I was a a new Christian and trying to, to learn these things, one of the hardest things to understand was faith. And it was something I had always heard but I just never really thought deeply about it. What is faith? You know, I, I kind of, when I pictured faith, I, I pictured in my mind something that was like mystical. Faith. What is it? How do you have it? What does it look like to have faith? It's simply to trust in something. Like right now, and I use this example a lot, you know, you're sitting in that pew and you are trusting that it won't break and you fall to the ground. You are having faith in your seat. (laughs) And I am having faith on this platform that it won't collapse. You are trusting in that pew, and I'm trusting in this platform. It's the same for Christ and what He's done with eternal things, with your very life and eternal life, resurrection and hope and all of the other things that we just mentioned. You put your faith, you put your trust, not in yourself and not in other things to give you life, joy, satisfaction, forgiveness of sin. You trust in Christ. You take your trust and you say, there's nothing else that can do this for me. There's nobody else that can do this for me except for you. My trust is in you, and it's in you alone. You're the only one that can accomplish these things. That's what it looks like to have trust or faith in Christ. And then this is where repentance comes in. 
Because when we, pr- when we truly put our trust in Jesus, when you truly have faith in Jesus, we forsake the things that we once trusted in. So I'll put it to you like this. Here you are in your sin. You know, you're facing your sin. This is what you've been trusting in for satisfaction and, and joy and things like that. You, you have been living for sin. It's been your master. You've been enslaved to it. But then the gospel comes in. You see Christ. And then you turn. You are putting your trust in Christ, turning from this and turning to Him. So in that moment, you have just exercised faith and you have just exercised repentance. Now at first, those things may be very small. And you may not be able to see them at first. And it's different from all sorts of people. But it does happen. You cannot say, I trust in Christ and still be hanging on to your sin. You can't do that. You can't say, oh, I love Christ, I have my trust in Him. I'm depending upon Him while you are clinging to your sin and loving it. It just can't work that way. There must be a turning. And I can get in trouble by saying that because there are a lot of people that do not want you to use the language of repentance to a new believer because they say it's works. And that's just not true. I mean, yes, it is a type of work, but it's something that God puts within you. That initial repentance and faith, they come together. Now, further along in the Christian life, you will continually exercise this repentance. You will continually turn from your sin. But it's there even at the beginning as faith is exercised, even if it is very small. It is there. Here's some examples of this in the Bible. The Bible holding up both of these, repentance and faith. They cannot be separated. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus here. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. The first part of verse 19. This is Peter preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. This is Paul, Silas, and the Philippian jailer. Then he, the jailer, brought them, Paul and Silas, out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Both of them held up in the Bible. Repentance and faith. Both of them. When you believe on Christ and you put your trust in Him, there is a turning from what you once were, 
from what you once loved, from what you were once enslaved to, to Christ. But you know, there's another part of this. Because we will not be able to do either of these things, have trust in Christ, faith in Christ, or turn, repent of our sin, unless God first works a miracle within our own hearts. It's, it's just not going to happen. John chapter 6, verse 44. This is Jesus again speaking. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Has been born of God. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must, be, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Did you see what Paul said there? God may perhaps grant repentance. Repentance comes from who? God. That's what Paul is saying there. Be gentle with them. Pray for them. God may perhaps grant them repentance. He may give them the ability to repent. So this is the miracle that God works within us. He works the miracle in giving us new hearts and new eyes to see Jesus for what He really is the most beautiful and satisfying person ever. And then we turn from our sin and we embrace Him after God showing us these things. This is the gift of salvation. And that is a mystery. Yes, I know. That's just one of those things that the Bible doesn't give you all of the details. And honestly, it's not supposed to because you're not God. But this is what the Bible simply says. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than these passages that I brought up. I mean, think about what Jesus says. He says to the people, repent and believe the gospel. But then at the same time, in John chapter 6, He tells them, nobody can come to Me unless the Father draws them. So He says, repent and believe but the only way you're going to repent and believe is if the Father draws you in the first place. And so that's why we, when we share the gospel with other people, we call them to repentance, we call them to faith in Christ, while at the same time being totally dependent upon God and His work. Because you can share Christ with them all day long till you're blue in the face, but it's not going to do anything until God takes His his piercing truth and cuts them to the heart with it. We preach Christ, we share Christ, but we are totally dependent upon Him doing the work of giving them new eyes, new hearts to see it. And I just simply ask, 
You know, have we, have we received this gift truly? Have we received it? Is Jesus Christ the most beautiful person, the most satisfying person that you have ever known, that you've ever seen, that you continually go to, that you, ten, you continually depend upon? If you do, then I say amen, because you will one day enjoy Him face to face. You will fully experience that fellowship with Him. You will, like Psalm 16 says, experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in His presence. So, amen. But if you do not know Christ... If you just simply know about Him, but He's not beautiful to you, if He's not your joy, if He's not your satisfaction truly, if He's not the one whom you would give and sell all that you have to, to obtain, like the man in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 44, where he buried the treasure, he went away, sold all that he had, and then in his joy... so he could receive the kingdom of God. If you don't know Christ in that way, then I simply just point you to the cross and all of the accomplishments that we were just looking at. Because it's only through Him that you will experience any of that. It's only through Him that you will experience true joy, that you will experience true life, that your sins will be forgiven, that the wrath of God will not be poured out on you, but has been poured out on Him. It's only through Christ that death has been defeated and that you will not have to experience it. So I point you to Him again and again, like I always do every Sunday. I hold him up and I pray to the Lord that he would give you the ability to see him as beautiful. Now as I close, I want to read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Because God receives all who come to him, he will turn none away. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come before You as we have just looked at the topic of redemption and seeing how we are indeed redeemed through Your Son, the Lord Jesus. Redemption is found only in Him. 
And oh, we are so thankful that He bore the cross for us, that He accomplished all of those, those truths that we were looking at a moment ago on our behalf. Those are things that we could not do. Those are things that we could not do in and of ourselves, that we could not accomplish in and of ourselves, but Jesus came and He did them for us. And through Him, we receive favor, acceptance, joy, satisfaction, relationship with You through Him. And Father, as I mentioned a moment ago, if there is someone who does not know Christ in that way, I pray that You would break into the darkness of their heart and You will shine the gospel light upon it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.